0: In early April 1951, I traveled a short distance from Mercury to Portsmouth Dockyard where, after a diligent search and numerous questions, I found HMS Ronaldo berthed at the North Corner Jetty. She turned out to be an Algerine class minesweeper of about 850 tons, half the size of the small destroyers I had previously served in. Ronaldo was being fitted out after a spell in reserve. Although the ship was close to commissioning, dockyard workers were still busy aboard and there was a marked absence of crew members. Engine room personnel were well represented, but, apart from that, only some seamen and specialists were seen. It was rather like moving into a new house, with half the family missing, and the building contractors finishing up while the moving men were almost done unloading the furniture. The distinctive thin black band round the funnel of Ronaldo, above the numeral four, indicated she was half leader of the fourth minesweeping flotilla, i.e. second in seniority. There are some definite advantages to being in senior ships. More staff and a general precedence pertaining to berthing positions, repairs and more favorable duties, to name a few. As I boarded, I was informed that the yeoman was on the flag deck. A yeoman. Things were looking up. Men joined the ship most days, from then on, until we had a complement of about 75 men, half that of the destroyers. An extremely busy week followed, before the ship was readied. Everyone was busy in his own part of ship. We, in communications, worked like dogs virtually all of the everyday equipment had to be drawn from stores within the dockyard. Much of this was awkward and cumbersome. In addition, we spent time bending flags and pennants onto wires and ropes, we made certain all our flags, sundry signaling equipment and confidential books were aboard and stored safely, in accordance with admiralty instructions, we arranged the MSO, and we painted and polished anything that needed it. It all took considerable time and effort. Then, one day, the captain gave his new crew the traditional inspirational speech and, Finally, we were a ship. With the new crew inboard Ronaldo sailed out of Portsmouth to begin a series of exercises, designed to test everything and train everyone aboard, but, particularly, the engines. The procedure is tersely termed working up and started, mainly, with drills and exercises designed to give experience of any, and all, probabilities that might occur to a seagoing vessel. Seamen, stokers, electricians, radar mechanics and, of course, communications ratings were all involved. There were no sprogs aboard, every man had seagoing experience. Life was already hectic, and this was only the beginning. The captain was given one extemporary test, however. Steaming into Portsmouth, one evening, we were approaching north corner jetty, a berthwell inside the harbour. An unusually large accumulation of ships, alongside the wall at the corner, caused a number of masts and other paraphernalia to present a serious hindrance to good clear visibility. We sounded our siren, as a precaution, just before the point of turning to starboard for the final leg of our journey. Our speed was not great. The sound of an answering siren, surprised everyone. Almost at once, the bow of a very large collier, in ballast and, therefore, high in the water, hove into view on our starboard bow. I was on the bridge, so can vouch for the accuracy of the following. The captain sized up the situation in a split second. Then he quickly, but calmly and clearly, gave orders to the engine room and the helmsman. Then he ordered clear the fossil. And close all watertight doors and hatches. These orders, too, were given clearly, but rapidly. Then, almost as an afterthought, he calmly said to those on the bridge, hold tight everyone. The following few seconds resembled a slow-motion film. The two ships inexorably closed. I believe the engine room was ordered to put the port engine slow ahead, in an extra effort to increase our chance of evading the collier. The sound of our starboard engine, straining, could be clearly heard as we awaited the outcome of this encounter. Our speed was certainly diminishing, but barely. Fortunately, the rudder-slash-engine combination began to take effect and Ronaldo was swinging slowly to the right. It wasn't enough. The collier crossed our bows and we collided violently. Because we were already turning to starboard, we missed being struck square on our starboard side. This would have been calamitous. As it was, we scraped and slid along the collier's port side, all the time heeling dangerously to starboard as the weight of the collier pushed against our port bow and fosel it was soon over the skipper gave fresh orders to the helmsman and the engine room and we proceeded to our berth for some seconds we were perilously close to being capsized by the larger vessel this catastrophe would undoubtedly have happened without the prompt evasive actions taken by the skipper who was eventually completely exonerated from any blame while his quick actions were praised Photographers, in Portsmouth, made money selling the result of photographing every ship they could. A new ship, or a air-commissioned ship, was particularly good for business of course. For a long time, the only photographs of Ronaldo clearly showed her battle scar. It could, so easily, have been so much worse, we could have been sunk in harbour, what an epitaph. On 16th of April 1951 Ronaldo was birthed in Portsmouth we were designated duty destroyer the first official recognition of us being a member of the home fleet. This duty is performed, at the captain of the dockyard's discretion, by any seagoing ship available and on the rota. The object of this perennial duty, which is self-explanatory really, is to have a ship in steam and ready in all respects for sea, to deal with any emergency that might arise where a ship would be able to assist. For instance, while performing this duty in rapid, we were dispatched to a point in the English Channel. The Queen was flying to or from the continent, and it was thought necessary to have a ship in a suitable area to be ready for an emergency. Flying, in the early 50s, was still considered rather risky. But, back to Ronaldo. As shore leave had been curtailed due to our duty, a number of the crew had arranged for relatives and friends to come aboard and inspect the new ship. All off duty hands were dressed in their best when I received a message to proceed to sea with all dispatch. HMS Afray, a fleet submarine, had suffered an accident and had, sadly, sunk. As I quickly made my way to the captain's cabin to inform him, members of the crew were alerted to our situation. No one, it has to be said, believed me. The captain, of course, immediately leapt into action and, believing me or not, the crew were soon at leaving harbour stations. Word had been sent, to the dockyard gates, and our guests informed. Passing the entrance to the harbour, opposite HMS Dolphin the Efrae's home base, as it happened, the channel narrows to about a cable, 200 yards. As we steamed out, into some dirty weather, many of our guests were identified and could clearly be seen waving from the stone promontory. It was a particularly poignant moment, for many. We were, of course, unable to do anything positive to assist the stricken submarine. This wasn't why we were there. We took up station, to protect the marker buoys that had been dropped and to keep other shipping away from the area. It was a miserable duty in so many ways. One's mind couldn't help but sink below the waves and wonder what had happened. We only remained on the spot for a couple of days, before properly equipped vessels took over and we returned to Portsmouth. The weather was atrocious. We remained, operating singly, for a short time before finally joining up with the remaining ships of the 4th Mine Sweeping Flotilla. Once joined, we started concentrated mine sweeping exercises in the Firth of Clyde. Dummy minefields had been laid out between the Isle of Arran and the Elsa Craig Rock. Both these gaunt, rocky and distinctive landmarks were to become critical navigational aids, during these exercises. Minesweeping can be likened, to eight combined harvesters methodically traversing a wheat field. Each harvester behind, and to the right, or left, of the one in front of it, so that there is no uncut wheat left between the paths of the various machines. The field, would represent the area marked by Dan buoys plotted as the minefield's extent. The fourth MS flotilla consisted of eight Algerians besides ourselves, there was Bramble-the-leader IEM.S.4, in signal parlance. Bramble's division comprised Pincher, Pickle and Fancy, while Ronaldo's division consisted of Rattlesnake, Cockatrice, and Cheerful. Great rivalry persisted between ships and divisions. It was about this time that the Russians were believed to have invented a magnetic mine that defied degaussing efforts. Degaussing consisted of, basically, making a ship non-magnetic. A system that had worked very successfully, The threat of this mine made the steel-hulled Algerine-class minesweepers redundant, but we were not privy to this interesting information at the time. Mines are sown, usually during wartime, to disrupt, or even stop, shipping in relatively shallow waters. They can be offensive or defensive. Estuaries, harbor mouths, busy shipping lanes and narrow channels are all ideal locations in which to sow mines. Acoustic mines and magnetic mines are usually allowed to settle on the seabed. Contact mines, which can be set to a specific depth, are moored to an anchor so that they strike a ship drawing sufficient draft to come into contact with the mine. It can be seen that contact mines can be set to hamper, only, large ships, or, if set higher in the water, most ships. Although blanket sweeping is carried out when the exact location of minefields are not known, captured documents and or one's own side's records can assist a great deal. we finished up dealing with both types of minefield and all three types of mine. Sweeping each of these mines requires different methods, of course, and each minesweeper carries all the equipment necessary. We exercised from first light to dusk, daily, clearing mines. When in company with other ships, there is always a prodigious amount of visual communicating. When sweeping, there is even more. Additionally, certain international code signals have to be flown, to notify other shipping of the activity being carried on. All this training, of men and equipment in every sphere of the operations, was to become second nature to the men of the 4th Minesweeper Flotilla. We put into Campbelltown, once, for a weekend's relaxation. A dance was arranged, also football matches and other sporting events between the ships and the townspeople. We were made to feel very welcome and the crews appreciated the gestures of friendship extended. Once a hive of naval activity, Campbelltown seldom saw naval ships once the war was over. As soon as we were pronounced efficient, the flotilla sailed for the Dutch naval base of Den Helder. This was early July 1951. We operated out of Den Helder, for weeks at a stretch, clearing mine's zone during the war, by both sides. Fortunately, many were affected by the long exposure to the sea and were harmless. We also operated off the northern coast of Germany, off Cookshafen, doing the same work. During sweeping operations, the whole crew, with the exception of watchkeepers off-duty, were kept exceedingly busy. Each branch of the service had its own special responsibilities and upon each man depended the safety of the ship and the crew. It was, from dawn to dusk, a busy time, but thoroughly enjoyable, in the main. Naturally, some incidents stand out in my memory. The darkened ship exercises, conducted as a flotilla and as an exercise for sweeping close to an enemy's coastline, being one such memory. On a cloudy and moonless night, it was decided to hold this infamous exercise. All lights, Including navigation lights, are extinguished and all dead lights, scuttle covers, closed and bolted shut. In this way, no light is visible outside the ship. The thought of eight invisible ships charging about in close proximity scares me to this day. The object of the exercise was to perform flotilla and division maneuvers at high speed and without benefit of being able to see each other. Communications, under these conditions, are critical and errors unforgivable, possibly fatal. Experience and efficiency are vital after some 30 minutes, things were going well, no one had hit anything. The whole flotilla was in line-ahead formation, when an incident occurred that bugs me still. Under the circumstances described, all signals from the leader, at the front of the column of eight ships, are passed back along the line, to the ship at the rear of the column. There is no preparatory call, to ensure attention, and no answer, signifying receipt, save as described later. In order, specifically, to reduce light, which might alert the enemy, a special signaling lamp is used which emits only a soft blue light, very hard to read. In addition, all usual procedures are ignored and only the letter R, signifying receipt of the message, and originating in the rearmost ship, is sent back down the line to the leader. This, to indicate that all ships are in possession of the signal sent out. The procedure is remembered as if it were yesterday, so burned into my mind is the bizarre occurrence that followed. I was concentrating all my energy on peering into the pitch darkness ahead of Ronaldo. A faint blue lamp flickered. I began to read a change of speed signal. It was clearly laid down, that there was no obligation to do more. The signal, coded, and therefore brief, of course, was transmitted three times, only, and took less than ten seconds, total. To my right the captain started screaming. Get a light, signal man! Get a damned light! The command was taken up by the other officers on the bridge. I concentrated, as I had to, on the message being sent it ordered an upcoming change of speed, very important under normal circumstances, vital in the circumstances existing. I tried to indicate my dilemma to the captain, while performing my duty, but it was useless. Speed was of the essence. As soon as the ship ahead stopped transmitting, I went to the rear of the bridge and, with my blue light, relayed the signal. There were three ships astern of Ronaldo. My duty was to wait, then, for an R, from the ship immediately astern, to indicate that all three had received the signal. This or I, then, had to transmit to the ship ahead of us, and then wait for the faint blue light to denote that the signal had to be executed i.e. obeyed. It requires no mental giant to see that my time was fully occupied. Distractions could be disastrous considering that riveting attentiveness was required to see the faint blue lights. However, the captain went absolutely berserk. He wouldn't listen to my reasons when, vividly, I was able to explain my actions. He screamed, literally, that I had disobeyed his direct order to get the light allegations of insubordination were bandied about and, for a while, pandemonium reigned on the bridge. Naval officers are not used to ratings arguing the toss with them. Of course, which made matters worse, I was right. I still do not know, what else I could have done. In the short term, I was dismissed from the bridge and the yeoman made to stand the remainder of my watch. This was supposed to blacken my standing with the yeoman, of course. However, when everything was later explained to him, the yeoman sided with me and approached the captain on my behalf. I was cleared of any wrongdoing or insolence, apparently. I say apparently, because the captain never had the decency, guts, to speak to me about it, although, I suppose I should be grateful that he didn't mention it adversely. To compensate me for this degradation and humiliation, I was paid the princely sum of 30 shillings, one pound and fifty pence, every two weeks. To this day, I'm not certain as to the captain's opinion about my proficiency. I always felt he held the incident against me, but, maybe not. In late June, And while sailing from the Firth of Clyde to Den Helder, we ran into dense fog off Cape Wrath. This was an interesting experience. Orders were given for the flotilla to sound their pennant numbers on their sirens periodically. In addition, we had a radar, of sorts. Fog, in any situation, is particularly disorientating. At sea, it is truly disturbing. After about two hours, we eventually steamed out of the fog bank, only to find the flotilla's station keeping left much to be desired. We were all over the place even though each captain felt certain of being in his correct station. Later, and before leaving the Navy, I was to see the enormous improvement in navigational aid brought about by the earliest radio beacons. These beacons had been erected along various coasts, to provide astonishingly accurate location information to ships, at sea, off the coasts of Britain and parts of Europe. The ship's position, in latitudinal and longitudinal minutes, was digitally recorded on a screen, depending on which and where each radio beam struck the ship. This gigantic step was improved still further, when satellites were later used to take the place of land-based beacons. Nowadays, a ship's navigator knows, within a few yards, his exact position on the oceans of the world. It is automatically plotted and displayed clearly. The stress on ships and equipment, while mind-sweeping, is considerable. Ronaldo's record of efficiency was second to none, but, even we had to return to port for repairs to be effected. occasionally. Some ships had an unenviable record of reliability. Den Helder, the Dutch naval base, was sometimes used to lick our wounds. At other times, we returned to Harwich, which was, now, our official base. Den Helder provided me some pleasure and a rude surprise as a result of a big disappointment. When the flotilla docked at Den Helder, it was common practice for only one ship and one man to keep communications watch. One of this man's responsibilities would be collecting and distributing messages for the flotilla, received by the signal staff on the base. This involved a short stroll across the jetty and into the signal tower. The signal office was staffed, predominantly, by women equivalent to our wr personnel. One of which was exceedingly attractive, to me, anyway. One thing led to another and a firm friendship blossomed. Over a few visits, the friendship grew until, finally, it was agreed on a date in the town. Time and place were arranged, and clearly understood. At the time and place decided upon, I waited patiently. At first I was confident but, as time passed, my assurance became less, and less. About to leave, I was approached by a couple of young women colleagues of my date. I had seen them, often, in the signal office. I couldn't help but notice, an obvious awkwardness in their manner. They told me that my date wasn't able to meet me. A feeling of inadequacy, of annoyance, of disappointment, all came over me. However, surprise became the dominant emotion, after things had been explained. It turned out that my intended soulmate, was the daughter of the Dutch Admiral. He, I was informed, had had a fit when his daughter had discussed her intentions and had forbidden any further friendship between us. Looking at it, now, from his point of view, it can be appreciated that I would not have been considered, by her father, as a suitable beau. Me, just a common sailor. When we left the harbour, a few days later, I spotted my girlfriend waving surreptitiously from an upstairs window. I contented myself that she still cared, But maybe it was all a spurious masquerade. Time heals everything, but an admiral, as a father in law, might have been interesting. When in Harwich, a favorite watering hole for the crews of the 4th MS Flotilla, was the Beehive Public House in Ipswich. Apart from finding myself ashore with a man who, when he had his limit, habitually smashed plate glass windows, I managed to keep out of trouble. One incident, however, demonstrates the dangers that are sometimes precipitated by drinking too much. Upon arrival back at the ship, Around 2,350 hours, a group of my messmates were seen gathered on the upper deck. This, obviously, caused questions to be asked, and it was learned that a particularly large, and normally quite docile, electrician had seized a butcher's knife and was determined to keep the mess as his personal and private domain. He had, apparently, demonstrated enough determination to indicate that any challenge to his authority would be foolhardy, if not fatal. We all crashed down on the cushions in the seamen's mess that night. Next morning, the menace of the mess deck remembered nothing of the incident. Tennyson wrote, in Lancelot and Elaine, He is all fault who hath no fault at all. My faults, singular as they may be, must be reported. Understanding is requested, as well as unqualified belief in my utterances. It all started, as they say, during a weekend leave in Hamburg. A small group of us had left the ship at Cook's where we had berthed, after a particularly strenuous period at sea sweeping. The train arrived sometime in the middle of the day. Our intentions were to visit a fairground, which was supposed to be spectacular, and also find the red light district. The latter quest was, at least in my case, purely a mild form of voyeurism. I just wanted to see the place, the activity, and compare, maybe, the place with Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, I was amazed at the tolerant nature of the authorities. Prostitutes advertised themselves in brightly lit rooms, clearly visible from the street. Those with rooms above a convenient level, used large mirrors, similar to rear-view mirrors, but only to enable their almost nude forms to be viewed from below. It was so unfamiliar, in its openness. Such sights were unknown to me, back in Blighty. We hadn't been in Hamburg long, before we were informed that it was too early for either of our intended visits. Rum, however, was cheap and available in numerous shops. At the time, it seemed a good way to pass the time. Some time later, we found our way to the fairground. It was all light and movement with screams of pleasure thrown in. There were three of us, walking through the crowds, the sideshows and the rides. We were, it has to be said, pleasantly drunk. There was not an ounce of hostility or animosity in either of us. We were, completely, content. Purely in high spirits, I threw my cap in the air. After recovering my cap, the three of us continued walking. Almost at once, a couple of British Pongos, soldiers, told us to get lost. They, themselves, appeared friendly even helpful, and we, honestly, could think of no reason for their warning. Unsure as to why, my colleagues and I complied with the order. We walked, getting faster, away from the area. Suddenly, we were running, to this day, I have no idea why, save, perhaps, the thought that a colleague had done something that he shouldn't have done. There was not the slightest feeling of any guilt, only one of exhilaration. The three of us reached a gate leading onto a service road. My colleagues were ahead of me, being considerably faster. I was last to exit. The area outside the gate was exceedingly dark, particularly after the glare of the fairground. My colleagues had turned each way, one to the left and one to the right. Aha, thought I, we are splitting up, so I ran straight across the road, into a tall, substantial, barbed wire fence. I came to, looking up at the muzzle of a large German shepherd dog which was attached, by a leash, to a large German policeman. Both were intimidating. I must have been unconscious for some while, for the crowd and the police to be there in such numbers. Slowly, my body regained the perpendicular stance so favoured by Homo sapiens these days. Orders, were then given me to proceed back into the fairground, with which I complied graciously and willingly. The dog, meanwhile, was keeping close to me. I am fond of dogs, all dogs. This one was no exception. A man-slash-dog friendship was attempted, but the dog wasn't interested. In fact, it ignored all advances and remained rather aloof. It, clearly, couldn't see the humor in the situation, but then, it was a German shepherd. There was a police station, within the fairground. After entering, a chair was indicated for me to sit upon. I did. The German police, to a man, were civil, efficient and non-belligerent as, indeed, was I, with the exception of the efficient bit. I sat and waited, for I knew not what, and examined deep lacerations to my arms and legs and a badly torn overcoat. Later, I would discover, and feel, my lacerated torso. Barbed wire, under tension, can cause considerable discomfort and pain, I discovered. I sat, rather bemused, in the police station for some time. Sounds and activity approached from behind my position. Without warning strong arms raised me, violently, to my feet and then frog marched me out of the building before literally, throwing me into the rear of an army jeep. Flesh and bone are no match for cold steel. I suffered greatly. We arrived at the military police barracks, where further indignity and violence were heaped upon me. Not being a man who is quick to anger, it was unusual for me to feel as aggressive as I finally became, but I was primed, and ready, when a voice, inside my head, told me to cool it. Eventually, I was thrown into a cell where my shoelaces were taken from me. I sat on the wooden bench and laughed. They had neglected to take numerous parts of my uniform which would have provided far better means to commit suicide than the short and flimsy shoelaces. Guards peered through the observation window, but didn't deign to ask the reason for my merriment. The next morning, the duty guards were much better people. They allowed me to clean myself and to make myself half-respectable, before telling me two things. Firstly, my shipmates were coming to collect me. Secondly the guard, who was particularly free with his fists and feet the night before, Had recently been demoted from sergeant for similar abusive behavior. He was heartily loathed by all the other men, but as a corporal, he had authority. Nobody had felt obliged to argue with the man, unfortunately. The practice of sending shipmates to collect miscreants stemmed from the desire to punish a man's messmates by effectively stopping their leave. No doubt, this can happen in large, impersonal ships and shore establishments. However, under the circumstances, my messmates enjoyed the run ashore. They had visited Hamburg, albeit for a short while, when they would not, otherwise, have done do. My escort arrived, like a hurricane, in the outer office of the guardhouse. Soon, I was free. Concern, over the lack of handcuffs was voiced by the military policemen, but the thought of such things was clearly laughable to we three met low off Ronaldo. Food was requested, by my mates. Surprise was forthcoming, from the MPS, when their prisoner was included in the eating plans. Such indiscipline appeared strange, to my erstwhile guards, but we were escorted, by a young private, to the mess hall. Here, we encountered a cook from the big smoke, London. We were also from that city, which made us all townies. This fact ensured us of only the very best, which included a hefty pile of sandwiches, each, for the journey back to Cook's often. We left, chatting cheerfully and very informally, much to the bewilderment of the military policeman on duty. I must say that, with the exception of the corporal, The remainder of the MPs treated me well and justly. Extra work and being confined to the ship, for two weeks, was my punishment for this escapade. This sentence was meted out, by the skipper before whom I appeared, a few days after being returned to the ship. I never denied being drunk, but, as I said, I was always a happy drunk with no violence or animosity in me while under the influence. Apparently my cap, when it had been thrown in the air, had struck an electric bulb on a sideshow. I gathered that they were hooked up in such a manner that the loss of one bulb meant the loss of the whole shebang, something like some Christmas lights, maybe. There was no intent to do damage nor any thought in my head except joyous abandonment. Such thoughts can certainly get you into a whole heap of trouble. The mention of rum reminds me that, although this perquisite of the service is no more, some trivia concerning it and some rituals surrounding it might be of interest. Admiral Vernon, in 1740, is reputed to be the first captain to issue rum to his crew. The rum was watered down. Because of his stylish cloak, Vernon was known as Old Grogram Dash hence the word grog for the watered-down rum issue. Officially, the cut rum is about quarter strength, still potent, believe me. Traditionally, in small ships with decent skippers, neat rum was allowed. It is sometimes termed hard layers. Like tobacco in prisons, rum was highly valued and used as currency, very unofficially. There were three main units, sippers gulpers and see it off sippers involved a very small sip of the creditor's rum ration. Gulpers, a good mouthful and see it off meant, to drink all that was in the cup. Performing another man's watch, where possible, might cost a few days gulpers or, if it meant foregoing shore leave, more. The loan of another man's burberry, a very fashionable raincoat, might cost two days sippers. It was also very complicated, but honorably conducted, usually. In large ships and store establishments, it was not unknown for the rum issue to be strictly audited. On small ships, this was not often the case. A designated man would be detailed to collect the neaters from the rum store, at midday. The number of men eligible that day, there could be variances, was checked before the requisite amount of pure naval rum was very carefully measured and then poured into a fanny. This was treated like gold dust until every last drop was safely issued and consumed. Some men who didn't drink, designated tea for temperance, and those age or, as they were known UA, received a small monetary award, a few pence per day. There is no doubt a few people abused this privilege of a rum issue. Some, in all honesty, signed on solely for it, so addicted did they become. However, in general, it served a good purpose, and it certainly helped forenoon watchmen to sleep. As my naval days slip from my memory, I do recall leaving Gibb, To return to the UK there had been a particularly successful party, put on by the ship's officers. Many local dignitaries and high-ranking officers were present on Rapid's quarterdeck, during the evening. There was much merriment. Then, at about 01.00 hours, not long after the party concluded, we cast off and sped out of the harbour. We gathered speed and raced into the night, with the bright moon shimmering on the fairly calm waters of the Strategic Strait. On the bridge, there was an animated discussion. Far too animated the bone of contention appeared to center on which channel, of quite a few, we should take. Buoys and lights flashed all about us, but the skipper and the pilot couldn't seem to agree. Meantime, Rapid was living up to its name and plowing on. We were putting on quite a show for the locals which, I'm certain looked very dashing. I just wish there hadn't been an element of doubt as to where, exactly, we might go aground. Of course nothing untoward happened, but it was certainly iffy. A most enjoyable activity, while in small seagoing ships of the Navy, was the frequent opportunity to visit with fishermen and lightship personnel. Often, we would purchase fresh fish from fishing boats, of any nationality. Lightship personnel were pleased to have companionship, even briefly. We would offload all the books, magazines and papers we had, in case there would be something of interest, and we would chat a while with the lightship crew. These days lightships, like lighthouses, are automatic and the chance to visit has gone. The pleasure a school of dolphins can bring to a ship is tremendous. To see the little beggars swimming alongside and, obviously, playing with the ship is, to most people, surely, most emotionally satisfying. Word went around like wildfire, whenever these beautiful and graceful creatures were sighted. Most of the crew, who could, would come topsides to gaze at them and enjoy their antics. I was sad to leave Rinaldo. Many good friends were being left behind when, one morning with the ship's postie, I sat in the ship's motorboat and traveled to Parkston Quay. Upon reaching the jetty a quick glance, over my shoulder, let me see the whole flotilla in the middle of the Stour estuary. They were in pairs, secured to buoys and looking good. Myriad thoughts flashed across my mind. The train journey to the Big Smoke was quite miserable. Liverpool Street station to Waterloo station and soon I was back in Mercury. The next day, I was in the Portsmouth barracks going through the release routine. A little later, I was on the train travelling back to the Big Smoke, but, now, I was, officially, a civilian. The romance of the sea is real, but the sea is a harsh and severe taskmaster. Common sense and respect enable a lasting love affair to survive. Liberties taken are severely punished, often with death. The sea, like some women, is unforgiving.